Welcome to the CSBS podcast, the podcast series of the Center for Social and Behavioral Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. The purpose of the podcast is to showcase our researchers, give voice to our community, and if we can, have some fun along the way. We are researchers, practitioners, and all-around social and behavioral science nerds. We're glad you're here for the journey. Smartphones have radically changed our world. They've changed how we work, how we connect with others, how we date, and how we manage our finances, to name just a few things. Recently, they've also changed how individuals with mental health issues receive services. For example, smartphones have changed the ways in which clinicians check in with their patients, and how patients with similar symptoms develop social support networks. But like most technological advances, smartphones come with as many problems as they do promises. For example, for patients with schizophrenia, video conferencing has the potential to backfire and trigger symptoms of paranoia. In this episode, we'll talk with Dr. Christopher Larison, a professor at the University of Illinois School of Social Work, about the promising and perilous aspects of using smartphones in community and mental health spaces. Chris Larison, thanks for coming and talking to us today. One of the questions I, I always like to ask and I want to know the answer to is your story. How the heck did you end up sitting here in a seat across from me talking about smartphone apps as a social work professor um, dealing with mental health issues that way? But what, tell us your story. How did you get here? How did I get here? That is incredible. <laughs> yeah, so like I, surprisingly, I went to Cornell for my undergraduate when Jennifer Green, uh, <laughs> um, uh, 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 Yuri Broffitt-Brenner, yeah. <laughs> that crew was still around. And yeah. so their influence was huge. And, uh, uh, you know, I really didn't know anything other than I had come from a lot of privilege and that I really felt like I could look around at me and see there were a lot of people that didn't get the same breaks I did. So I wasn't the brightest kid and I certainly wasn't the best behaved kid, but things certainly worked out for me. And I understood that from the beginning of like, that's sort of privilege. Long before we talk privilege today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that sort of led me down the path. You know, like huh. I took my first job at a residential facility in New Jersey where I worked with teens who were behind locked doors. Okay. And I did a similar thing and it took it drove me away from being a Oh, no way. That was it. You were done with it. I, you know, they're, you've, they're you've, tough. You you go to these types of settings and you realize your limitations. I realize mine. <laughs> and so when it came to therapy and helping people, uh, it wasn't a strong suit. So, yeah. But for you, you had that experience and you thought this is the thing you wanted to do. I did. In fact, you know, I tell this funny story where uh, nine months into the job, I, you know, I had I, gotten a speeding ticket with the van with the kids, which is trouble, right? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they t we had a long talk about it and we decided, well, Okay, I'm I'm gonna leave, and you know, I, and so students will ask this question like, "Well, did you hate the job?" I was like, "Well, I didn't really like the facility, but the kids, the kids, yeah. I loved the kids. Yeah. That was so yeah. much fun." And so I went from there to a community mental health center in Passaic, New Jersey, that worked predominantly with uh, all immigrants coming out of the dirty wars in Central and South America during the 80s wow. and 90s. Yeah, so first exposure to this huge Latinx yeah. population, Spanish speaking, and I loved every moment of that. And these kids were three to 11 year olds who had been psychiatrically hospitalized. So, you know, to, to be that age and be psychiatrically hospitalized. Wow. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> You've got, but again, love the kids. And this time, love the organization. I was like, come here, how's cool? <laughs> and then uh, yeah, it usually was a tough place to live. I had an hour commute and I came yeah. home one day and said uh, to my roommate, like, we're 
moving to Vermont. <laughs> we packed a van, moved to Vermont, and uh, had a job. I took a job with the Community Mental Health Center there, and it, my job was to provide wraparound services, but they didn't use that word. Wraparound hadn't been invented. Mm-hmm. So there were, Robert Wood Johnson was funding three sites. Vermont was the only whole state site, and then they had two other cities. And it was to take kids from um, residential placements, bring them back home, and provide them with wraparound services. And the reason they did Vermont as a whole state, Vermont's a very small state. Say, it's about the size of a city. so Right. And so they had no residential facilities. They sent everybody out of state. so they wa- And it cost a lot of money. They wanted them back. Uh, and so my job was to bring kids back and wrap around, uh, wrap around services. And my mentor at the time was a woman named Marge Wood. And she said, listen, you're pretty good at doing this and you have a great deal of patience. Why don't you go back to graduate school? And at graduate school, they said, you seem to have an aptitude for, for doing research. Why don't you stick around and do research rather than be a therapist? Interesting. So you got turned into a researcher <laughs> where you thought you were going to be a therapist. Absolutely. I totally thought I was going to be a therapist. What went wrong? Oh, sorry. I no, no, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, You're like, telling me you could have been out in the community helping people. Yes. And you chose not to. And I chose not to. Okay. Yeah. You're going to have to explain that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, in a classic <laughs> way. Uh, a, 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 a guy named Bruce Steyer, who's a professor at the University of Georgia, would have this pitch, like social work, uh, you know, at the time, w- was pretty new to having PhD programs. Right. We haven't had PhD programs for more than maybe 25 years. So, and you had to have a PhD program to get NIH funding. And so Bruce would have this huge pitch at the beginning of his class about like, come, do the PhD. And it was like selling a used car. And literally in a class of 30, 28 kids be down at the PhD program office with like, can I get an application? He was good. Yeah, he was good. Yeah. Yeah. So that was it. Cool. Thank you for telling us your skin to us today. Um, we wanted to chat with you a little bit about your research. Uh, we know, for example, that you are an expert on smartphones and apps and how they can be used to help uh, with mental health issues. I was curious if you could tell us some things about your research on that topic. Yeah, thanks a lot for asking, Brian. Uh, generally speaking, I don't. I am not an expert. <laughs> I'm a man who's learning, <laughs> and I think I, I think that would define all of us, right? You know, in terms of uh, how are we using our smartphones particularly around health-based issues and, um, you know, in mental health in particular, I think that we are still trying to figure out what is it about the phone? Is it an app? Is it the phone itself? Is it communication? Is it tracking your own data? Is it using automated uh, SEM, or or I'm not using the right word, but the automated text messaging to, 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 to contact and communicate with people? So I think there's a bunch of stuff going on that uh, that is wide open right now, and the opportunities seem wide open to me. Um, okay, so I could see that there are issues of how it could hurt or help mental health. Uh, I was curious, uh, concretely, what are the types of uh, features of the smartphones that are dedicated to or focused on helping with mental health? So it was great. Last Last year, NIMH, my my uh, section of NIMH, which is the services section, had uh, uh, their meeting, and the keynote speaker got up and said, you know, we've done 10 years of apps for mental illness, and we've gone through the clinical trials, and they work, and but nobody's implementing them. 
So, <laughs> so that was that was one of my questions. I mean, we, we have, as you know, everybody has a smartphone, and my smartphone is littered with dozens and dozens of apps that I haven't bothered to delete. Are these apps going to suffer the same fate, or do people actually engage with them, use them, and benefit by them beyond what we see in a controlled study, for example, that you might get out of NIH? I'm really sort of worried about that, to be honest with you, Brent. That I, that I think is where the biggest weakness lies, because right now we are all running with the Apple model, which is as soon as I get that box, I can open it up, turn it on, and the thing works. And I don't need any assistance at all, like at all. You know, and if best, I, I do need some assistance. I can call Apple and they'll give it to me, or I can go to the, the the smart desk and they'll give it to me. Right now, most healthcare agencies don't have anybody at the other end of that app, and often the apps have been developed by independent uh, app developers rather than healthcare developers, and so those are the most popular. And then the apps that are developed by the healthcare crew that are funded by NIH, for instance, they're not getting the traction or advertising or the support that it would need. So I think that that's the biggest problem is that we keep forgetting there's this huge human component to using the smartphone or using apps in a healthcare kind of setting. So um, what you're telling me is humans are still important. That's good to know in some respects. Um, in other respects, you obviously know what kind of apps have worked in the the organized research done through you know, RCTs or randomized control trials at NIH, and you've seen them used in the real world. And I was curious from your experience, what are the features of the types of mental health apps or, let's say, mechanisms on your smartphone that actually do help people? And how do you get them to help people? Does it require somebody like me sitting on the other side making sure that you're using it? Or is it one of those things where there are apps that have been built and function independent of humans that still seem to do really well. So there are apps that have been built and, uh, and function, and they're automated. So you can automate CBT. What's CBT? So uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Okay. So you can, you can automate CBT in text messaging. Huh. And it, but I mean, and that, it works. That, that requires a therapist, right? You need to have somebody who responds to you and does so in a contingent fashion. Are you telling me that the apps are so good right now that if I'm suffering from an episode of depression um, and I'm feeling down that I could text my app therapist and it's going to know how to respond to me in a dynamic way? Yes. Not, not only it wouldn't be your therapist, it would be the app. So you're saying I can replace my therapist? Yeah. Don't tell my therapist. I won't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and there is something about, uh, uh, I say this a lot, there's something about texting that hits some sweet spot with most human beings where you it feels personal enough, but you really doesn't feel intrusive. Mm -hmm. So you don't really have to respond, but you can respond. Uh, it doesn't have the same weight as an email, a phone call, uh, a video chat kind of event. It, it really seems to be neutral for some reason. I don't know why. I like, can't put my finger on it. Like when you get a text, like, right. do you feel like, you know, sometimes you respond, other times you're like, well, thanks for the information. Mostly I don't respond. No, just kidding. Right, um, right. Depends no, so, the, the text is from, you know that. Um, but so... Uh, 
uh, let me be a little bit skeptical. Okay. Right? Yeah. Because uh, from my limited knowledge, and like you, I'm not an expert, but I do. I have friends who are therapists and people who do therapy research, and they tell me that one of the key elements of, of an effective therapeutic relationship is that connection you have to the therapist. And so, yeah, yeah. It, and there's kind of an accountability, right? If you're going to go talk to somebody about your stuff, you know, they're not your friend. They're somebody who's kind of independent. And that's what's kind of nice about them. Yes. But and then you're held kind of accountable to them, right? Because they're going to be there to support you, but to be somewhat neutral and to give you kind of neutral advice, so to speak, about how things should go. That doesn't seem to me to be something I get out of text. Is text still something that's going to be effective in helping me, for example, with that depressive episode? Surprisingly, yes. So, so there is actually research that you've seen yeah. that shows that a text-based CBT intervention for people with yeah. you know, uh, the, a typical psychological issue like depression is effective. Yeah, I read one this morning. Really? And I can't remember what I, which one I read this morning, but there's one even deeper that I can't remember the authors. I'm not, you know me, Brent, I'm not good with names. But the, there's a, um, uh, they, they took a look at uh, clients that had long-term case managers. So not therapy, yeah. but case mm-hmm. managers. Yeah. These are people you interact with a lot that are right. you trust to help you out with all kinds of things. Okay. And then they compared it to case managers using text. So not an automated version, but, mm-hmm. you know, because I think it's harder to automate right. case management than it is something like CBT. But they found out that actually the clients even with long-term case managers that they said at the beginning they liked preferred the text messaging because it gave them some distance. Interesting. So I was somewhat joking before about getting rid of my therapist, but this sounds like I possibly could. Is this really the case or is this a situation where you see an apt as an adjunct uh, to somebody who sees a therapist or as, let's say, a solution for those who may not have access to a healthcare professional, for example, somebody in the rural setting of Southern Illinois who might not have a therapist in their county. This could be something that could could help them. Which one are you saying? Boy, I'm going to say both, <laughs> and I'm a little bit worried <laughs> uh, because at the end of the day, uh, I, I look at the, anything going on at the smartphone, particularly all the way down to the app level, and I do treat the smartphone as a whole event, so I'm not just an app person. But if right. you go down to the app event, I think of that as like medication. So my primary care pr- pr- physician can write me a prescription for a depression medication, and I can go home and take that, and it will have some effectiveness if it works right, right? right. Um, uh, but I don't know. It, I think all of us that do mental health are really concerned about that, like, oh, here's medication and go home and take it and you don't need to talk right. to anybody about that. Right. Well, that would be an app too. So I think of it more of an ancillary for a lot of people, but medication also works this way in rural settings. Uh, you, you know a lot of my research comes out of southern Illinois. If you get out into the middle of nowhere, southern Illinois is not that rural. Go to eastern Montana. <laughs> <laughs> where they're nothing, <laughs> right? Then, right, your primary care physician will give you medication for depression and cross their fingers and hope for the best because there's nothing else to do. So it actually is both, but it's not positive in either way. And I think that's the problem is where's going to be the – we're already personnel short in mental health services. Right. Where's going to be the person on the other end of the phone when the app runs its course, right? So I go through the CBT process on the app, and I'm still having some concerns I'd like to talk about. 
Can it be? Well, I mean, I guess one question is, have they built the apps to be that smart where they're more adaptive than just giving you a dose, so to speak, of therapy uh, for a specific thing? Um, are they built in a way that's a little more of a like an adjunct, like a, a, a physician's assistant, right, to a therapist where they can be a little more responsive to what the person needs and wants? Are they pretty much designed to treat a specific thing like depression or anxiety or, or psychosis? They tend to be very pretty specific. You know, they're, they're, I've seen some very beginning research around psychosis where, where they are trying to use machine learning to make algorithms that are responding to the client's description of the psychotic break, for instance, and then using a decision tree kind of approach that you see in all of medicine to then feed you a particular message as you respond to it. So, but that doesn't still, that, I, I don't think that solves the human aspect. I, 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 all the way, all, I'm, you and I are old enough that we can remember the beginning of evidence-based practice talk within mental health, right? right and before right. that, I asked my students all the time, like, how do you think I was estimated as a clinician? My boss asked me, how did you do last week? <laughs> But you got close supervision, right? You had people who were watching you give therapy and they were, you know, monitoring your skill set and seeing what you did with actual patients. So, you, you, I mean, that was the tradition. I'm not not here to advocate for that being the, the most effective technique, but we did have that at least quality control mechanism in the system, right? That's right. We did have at least that piece. Whereas, like, in, today, and I, I lost track of my thought here. <laughs> What's over there? I see it. No, sorry. We'll get it back in a second. <laughs> let me get, let, well, let me restart you a little bit because I was curious because um, we haven't talked about it. And you said a, a lot of words there that people might not quite understand, especially in this context of machine yeah. learning, psychosis. Um, in terms of the, the spectrum of mental health issues, uh, what type of things have been treated with uh, smartphones and smartphone apps? Uh, and what type of things are not on that menu so far? And um, are, are they differentially effective for different things, substance use, depression, anxiety, psychosis? W what are we talking about in terms of the types of mental um, health issues that are being treated? Being treated. Yeah, yeah I think you, you see the range and you do see variants. Uh, I think texting works well for the classic mental health issues. Um, what are, in your mind, what are the classic? The, all right, so I'm, I'm, I'm an old school SMI guy. I, I would do work. I do adults with serious mental illness. So okay. there really are a couple of diagnoses, schizophrenia and all psychosis, okay. bipolar, major depression, okay. major anxiety. Okay. So then the, within that crew, that seems to be like in that clustering, the, 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 they all seem to work. Where substance abuse seems like a, a little, like they approach it differently. So like I think some of the earliest users of like smartphones kinds of stuff and even cell phone stuff were the substance abuse people because you could ping people around what are, are you having a craving now? So again, that naturalistic data that we talked about earlier, right. right? For the first time, you didn't just ask somebody, so Chris, are you having a craving? <laughs> Not a real great approach. Thank you for reminding me. I do. Yes, I exactly have a craving now. Yeah, that, that might not work well. Um, right. So I think it, it does depend a little bit. Like if you you see, like I don't know anything about eating disorders. One could well imagine that there's got to be eating disorder apps that are really specific about the issues and 
symptomology that revolves around eating disorders. It's just not a disorder I usually work with. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about machine learning, and you started using terminology that, for is I know, um, becoming much more common for us. But could you unpack that a little bit? How would a computer or an app uh, use machine learning, so to speak, to understand my behavior better and be able to treat me? And why is that different than something else that's on my cell phone right now that doesn't use machine learning? Yeah, the, the machine learning piece really will allow uh, uh, the app to respond. I, I guess maybe the better way to back this up a little bit is you remember books when, the, when, when it came out where you could choose different endings? Mm-hmm. Well, that's what the machine learning does for you on the app. So it allows you, right, to input something, and it's not just a rote response. It actually learns from what you're saying. Interesting. Okay. And and moves it forward. But again, the piece that I lost before that I was saying was like, I don't think any of this replaces the human uh, uh, interaction. And we've been around long enough for evidence-based practice when it was first being discussed as being like, this is going to be the solution. Part of the problem with mental health is we we don't know what we're doing. We don't have great evidence. And um, the fact of the matter is that there is good evidence-based practices now, and we just don't do a good job of of tracking them well and understanding them well as they get implemented in some ways. Why, Why is that? I think we're back to personnel problems human capital, so to speak? Yeah, we we don't have the people and the institutions that we need? Or, what, I mean, what's missing in the system that makes it difficult to get things that we know work in science, like we've, we're getting these papers published through support from NIH and National Institute of Health, and we know that a certain app does actually help. Right. Um, and yet we don't know... We don't know whether uh, it gets used in the general public with real therapists in the real world very effectively. Yeah. Couldn't actually this be a topic for an app and machine learning? Here's a research idea. <laughs> well, I think I think it, there's a lot of issues that get tied up. Uh, um, I, one of the questions here was about HIPAA. I'm like, I don't think any of us understand HIPAA very well. Give us a def- quick definition of what, what's HIPAA. <laughs> so any any of your health care data that's been generated while you've been receiving health care <laughs> is considered HIPAA data. And so that is then held confidential by the institution that provided the service. So I downloaded a wellness app just out of curiosity that's supposed to do uh, cognitive behavioral therapy with me. Oh, nice. When I did it and I I stopped responding to its (laughs) queries almost immediately, um, which made me think twice about the whole institution. But um, is that now lodged in some kind of HIPAA repository? I mean, or is that because I downloaded it on my own, didn't interact with a healthcare professional, that's someplace else? That's that's some, that's a company that now owns your data and is about to sell it to somebody else. Quite comforting. Thank you. For <laughs> <that>. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, it's, you know, I, I like, I like the uh, joking around a little bit, but it is one of the, the, the pieces that I think people um, don't quite understand about HIPAA data. It has to be generated within a healthcare setting 
providing health care services. Okay. So if you like if you want to use an app and load up onto it that I have schizophrenia and I'm having a psychotic, that's not HIPAA data. That's you sharing your data with uh, with a company. Um, okay. Um, so part of what's behind these questions is is something that you study, um, which is the difference between basic and, and applied science. There's um, this term you used, which was implementation. And I, I'd be grateful if you could describe a little bit what you mean by that um, and what we know from a science perspective about implementation science and, and why it's important and, and why we should potentially care more about it. Yeah, thanks. I like that a lot. You know, you, uh, Going back to the evidence-based practice piece, we have a lot of good evidence-based practices within mental health that don't get implemented any place. Right. And so... Why? (laughs) That was the question that NIH started asking about 20 years ago. They're like, we've spent a lot of money on coming up with good solutions to problems. Why are they not appearing? And, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, think about how all of it works. You have to start by changing what I'm training people in classrooms all the way down into a master's program in social work to make sure that they're actually getting the manualized training. How many manuals can I train in a two-year program? How every clinician that hasn't been that's trained after us and probably ten years before us, they never knew a manual in their life. Right. right? So like we're in this very strange stage where I think just the environment itself almost makes it impossible for us to get to that place unless we're going to input a lot more resources into this process. Interesting. Again, back to the cell phone, I suspect we could profit from making an app that helps train people in manualized therapies. Um, That's an interesting... You know what, Brent? I've never heard anybody say that, but that's an interesting idea. Just just a suggestion. I I will take uh, royalties, um, (laughs) credit, whatever it might might be, but nonetheless, it seems to me we've got these tools, um, and we should probably use them. So uh, we, we didn't we started touching upon it a little bit, um, which is the privacy issue when it comes to these um, the, the, the cell phones and, and treating people and the like. Uh, the, the flip side is the darker side, right? Um, that there are people who don't trust um, and there are people who really trust. So it seems, if I may stereotype um, the youth of today below my age also, um, they seem to be rather blasé about these issues. They don't care about posting things about themselves in public spaces. They don't, uh, they're, they're not as deeply concerned maybe as we might think they should be about sharing all their information with Facebook and the like. One of the places where this interface between confidentiality and anonymity and and asking people for things and a need is is with our students. So, for example, we know that at least in the current cohorts of students coming to the U of I in particular, we have a, a pretty large proportion of students who have engaged with mental health issues. And I believe there was uh, an issue brought up by the students just a couple weeks ago saying that we didn't have the mental health service capacity to take care of those needs. And it might be that we could never have that because it might require so many dozens, if not hundreds of therapists, for example, to be hired. Um, in the absence of that, is is the smartphone and are the apps that you've seen developed for 
the general population something that could be used with students. I know their reaction, there was one reaction where it was like, ah, you know, don't give us an app or don't give us a smartphone. That's impersonal. You're just, yeah, that's the cheap way to do it, right? Um, give me something real. So there, uh, there seemed to be a really negative attitude towards the, the idea to begin with. But is that wrong? Maybe this is a solution to that, that problem. Yeah, I don't know if it's wrong. I understand where they're coming from because for, 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 for them as a generation now, everything on this campus runs through their smartphone. And I'm going to go back to placing you and me in ancient history. But remember going down to register for classes? Yes. Waiting in line. For a long time. All, right, long <laughs> Interacting with all of your, all the people around you is like yeah. going to a concert. And Bonding you, through duress, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and hoping to God you're going to get the classes you want. <laughs> Which you never did. No, of no. So at the end of the day, right, all of this stuff now is done electronically. And so when then you get to this point where like every human interaction that has tr- traditionally been done uh, in the past as the business end of the university is now electronically done. And then I ask you, well, on top of that, you're having this mental health problem. How about if we do that electronically too? I'm now feeling like, so the bursar's office, my registration, and my mental health all are equals. Well, I mean, I think (laughs) maybe I shouldn't say this. Um, but if all of those programs work seamlessly, then they might be more confident that the, <laughs> right. the intervention would work. But I do, I do uh, hear at times that students don't find our, our computer systems integrated in effective fashion. So possibly to throw something else on top of that might be, a, be an issue. Well, um, and I also fear, Brent, to be honest with you, uh, like one of the things I do in the uh, class I'm teaching now where I actually have a midterm exam is I offer it out in three different ways where I'll offer it out. You can come do it in class. You can take it as a take home or you can do it orally. And the reason I offered out that third option was I was hearing students going through a two-year master's program and saying, I've spoken to a professor no more than 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. So that sort of builds on this idea. I can't see a therapist today. I didn't make the line. And what you're going to do is you're going to give me an app. Yeah. And the rates, and and, and and this is, I want to be very careful here in terms of like, I am not being critical of the university here. The university is working very hard to try to figure this out. The problem is we now, uh, epidemiologically, when you look at the numbers, the rates are anywhere. I've seen them as low as 40 and as high as 70% amongst undergraduate and graduate students. If you have close to 70% of under, undergraduate or graduate students having a diagnosable anxiety or depression, that's well beyond any community's capabilities to handle. True, true. And, and yeah, I'll second the fact that uh, the, the administration seems very concerned about it, but um, it seems to be a, a, a difficult challenge. Um, I have not seen very many people that have been able to do this. So the people that have been able to be successful, UPenn had an article in the Chronicle recently, and they were using apps. <laughs> but it's a small private university with a relatively, you know, circumscribed student body. So that's right. Um, well, you know, interestingly enough, like sh- so, Sean Mullen and I, who is over in kinesiology, we think that one of the ways of helping would be listen. We know exercise has good impacts on anxiety and depression, and we could take the waiting list, say, over at the counseling center. We know peer group interventions work well, and we know that CBT can be automated. So we could put together 
together an intervention that automates CBT for you, puts you in a small peer group that doesn't focus on your mental health but focuses on your exercise, right? And you're a guy who does exercise. These so you're going to put me on a team that loses. Oh, sorry. No. no. I just, <laughs> <laughs> just force me to take intramurals. And do CBT. At no, the no, time. no. I'm thinking, you know, and it's sort of funny that you guys, that, that, that you would say it this way. But you know what? I think of you. Just think about the worst possible scenario. I know. <laughs> but, you know, I think of the best. And the best was, is you guys. Think about, think about your new, new running group. You guys track each other in terms of like uh, like like you track your running stuff. So it's not like, but I'm sure as you get together in, a, in that group, right, you talk about other things in casual ways that really wouldn't wouldn't naturally come forward if it wasn't for the exercise in the in the peer group. True, but I'll be the first to say that um, exercise is not the intervention for all people. No, uh, they should be given the choice. Um, that it, it is not always an answer. Um, I, it would be. Uh, a tragedy if I didn't force you to answer this question, okay. which is, of course, what everybody wants to know when it comes to cell phones, apps, and especially teenagers. Uh, uh, are they melting the brains of uh, adolescents today, and should they be banned and controlled? Um, are they this uh, thing that all parents should fear and they should tell their kids to avoid using them at all costs? Gosh. Yeah, I love that question. <laughs> I, I have seen Told articles. Told you we'd ask the easy questions. Right I, I, I have seen both of these. I've seen answers to both. So uh, I'll start with one that it maybe is a little bit unusual. You see declining uh, drug and alcohol use amongst uh, teens. And there is a suspicion that the reason that you're seeing declining drug and alcohol use is that they're using their cell phones to soothe. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a good thing, right? I don't know. We don't. So that then becomes the question: like, is it is it a good thing to be using the cell phone to soothe, or is it creating more mental health? And I've seen articles that go both ways, where like overusage, right, creates. Isolation, which then relates to anxiety, that relates to depression. I've seen going the other way that it builds like so people um, with high end disabilities previous to uh, uh, the Internet. Right. How would you yeah. interact with right. somebody? Right. Oh, there's a wonderful story about a, a gentleman who was living in his parents basement. He had a, high, a really serious disability um, and they were you know, distraught that he was spending his last few years because he was you know, he had a disability that would end up um, killing him when he was about, I think, 20, 21. And they, they were very distressed by the fact that he was spending hour after hour until he died. And then they went to his funeral and all of the gamers that he had be, been you know, accepted by and supported by came to his funeral and they realized, unbeknownst to them, that he had an amazingly rich social network that you know, supported him, loved him, and did everything for him, had no idea he was disabled or that he was suffering in any shape or form. And, and then they thought, okay, in retrospect, Maybe we shouldn't have been so anxious about it. Anxious um, about it. And it's very funny, you know, when you look at the uh, of, of those environments, the one environment that seems to have done that is the gaming environment. So I don't know if you remember Second Life, and I don't even know if Second Life's still around. But that, You are old. <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah, I'm dating myself in every moment here. <laughs> You're going to be talking about Doom pretty soon. <laughs> even, but, no, sorry. A Astro. <laughs> uh, Do you know Pong? <laughs> yes, I, I played Pong. Yeah. I actually You're very that. good at it. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, if you think about that, yeah, the uh, uh, the I lost my thought again. <laughs> <laughs> the, the gaming, the gaming world, the gaming world is so much better. Second Life has dropped. Like the I, I used to 
used to use it as an assignment and it, it, it started becoming so disorganized and then also X-rated that I was like, okay, oh. you can no longer we're no longer in second life. <laughs> second life. But the gaming people are, I mean, you see the universities are making teams uh, yeah. the, and they're pay, people are getting paid seven-figure salaries to yeah, play these yeah. games. Uh, they are true communities. They like interact with each other. So I wonder how much, like, should be we be looking at the games more than we're looking at, say, some of the stuff that we're looking at the smartphone? Right, right. What they're doing on the phone as opposed to the phone itself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on a, let's say, university topic yeah. that we care deeply about and that we're also grateful for. Um, at the CSBS, we have three main areas of focus at the moment. Um, the digital revolution and social science, uh, social science and behavioral science and how they contribute to better or worse health, which of course you also overlap. Uh, and the third is the solving poverty initiative. And you were uh, in the run up to the creation of the CSBS, one of the primary movers in making that point and the fact that we should not only be studying poverty, not also be uh, trying to understand inequity, but actually trying to solve poverty. And I was curious, your, your thoughts, your thinking, what made you think that that was something that we should be doing and what in particular do you think we should be doing in the next few years on that topic? Uh, yeah, I, I, poverty, I, I was surprised when I came to this campus that poverty was so, and maybe I just was not interacting with the right people. That maybe we're a big campus, so I, yeah, I, maybe, huge. I'm just, maybe I'm saying the wrong thing here. But at least initially, what I thought was like, boy, we don't have a lot of poverty researchers here, and um, uh, uh, so I pushed very hard. And there's a huge crossover between mental health and poverty. Uh, it, it has, it, and it's a classic question: Is it? Uh, which direction is the cause? Right. So causal direction, you know, does poverty cause mental illness or does mental illness cause poverty? Right, right. And I'm thinking it's a little bit of both. And I'm right. a social determinants kind of guy around mental health. So it made sense for my perspective to focus on poverty. Interestingly enough, one of the projects that I did that was sort of limited on mental health was to look at welfare reform in mm -hmm. 1999 as a change from AFDC. So so What's AFDC? Aid, aid for Families with Dependent Children to TANF, which is Temporary Assistance for, for Needy Families. For needy families. Yeah. yeah, so I took a lot of look at that. And within that, you could even see some of my research will revolve all of a sudden around health. I'm like a lot of people on TANF or AFDC were there because of health reasons more than poverty. Oh. So the, the two are intertwined in a significant way. Yeah, and then you can see a lots and lots of like data where the correlations are incredibly high between depression and poverty. Are, are there, in, in terms of the mindset of the Solving Poverty Program, the, the mindset is to do something. And I'm curious whether there are places or institutions or policies, for example, where that correlation isn't so high. Are there examples in other countries and certain states where we've broken that connection between mental health and poverty, for example? Ooh, that's a great question. Boy, I don't I only know. get one per 
interview. So this is it. That was it. Holy <laughs> cow. I'm stumped. Like that's not permissible. You have to answer the okay. question. And all right. right. So then I'm going to go. Then I'm going to go to my my fallback position. Welcome to Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean that. That's, or that's or better yet, welcome to Norway, which has a, that's a, dark all the time. So they. Oh no, it's Finland. Sorry, I'm getting my, my Norway. <laughs> ha- Norway up. has a national trust fund. Because they have, uh, they sit on oil and gas. Right. So they have what's called a sovereign wealth fund. Huh. So if you think about Saudi Arabia as well, they have a sovereign wealth fund. Right, right. <laughs> uh, helps. Texas actually has a sovereign wealth fund. Uh, we always thought of Texas as a different country, but they, they might not. They, they have their own sovereign <laughs> wealth fund. Really? Yeah. <laughs> like the only the only research that you can see around um, uh, um, endowments mm-hmm. is Texas because huh. it's public. Huh. And their 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 sovereign wealth fund is as big as anybody else's, <laughs> like as big as big. So like if you take someplace like Norway, they have a sovereign wealth fund. They have an outstanding social service system, right? Right. They're still having problems with mental illness. Okay. Okay. So there has not been a system. I was just telling my students this. Unfortunately, I can't point to a country in the world that has done well with mental health. And even if you separate the poverty issue out, so right. give everybody right. a basic level of income, make sure they have basic access to the services. There's plenty of money floating around because of a Southern Wealth Fund. Mental health still okay. there. Okay. And then, you know, you asked about the money piece. Like, the thing that was sort of interesting to me that threw me off when we talked a little bit, you were like, what's your favorite social science fund? <laughs> like, oh, boy, what is that going to be? And one of them has been really recent, and it ties back to this, is that actually money is a great intervention. Huh. Uh, do you have an example for yeah. for our listeners? Yeah. So in – Community development settings, so uh, not to be overly stereotypical, uh, there's a lot of uh, development intervention that goes on in Africa, right? And, you know, because of poverty, uh, uh, disease, all kinds of reasons, right? And so um, oftentimes it's provided by people like me. Right. I come in from the UN, I get paid my six-figure salary, and I tell you what you're going to do, correct? Right. Uh, Or... I run a nonprofit right. and I collect money and I give you a goat. Right. And you, and that's going to help you own right. a business. Our World Bank comes in and uh, says this is something we're going to try because their economists have read your study saying this is the program that should be used in Uganda or some other country. And it's implemented whether um, those people want it or not. Or yeah. not. Yeah. That's right. So the Silicon Valley crew, <laughs> yeah. you know, Bill Gates and Ross, Bill, Bill is not in this, but Bill, the type of people like Bill got into this and were like, you know, I, you guys have been doing this development stuff for a long time in a lot of these countries without any success. How about this? What if we try money? <laughs> and so they picked out, there There were some early uh, uh, people out of like running foundations who picked out some small villages where uh, in the initial run, they gave money to the poorest people in the village. They gave them a full year of salary, one off. And it was a, a little bit disastrous because it created all this politics. Why did, why did Brent get 5,000 bucks and I didn't? So the second Second time around, they just gave the 5000 bucks to everyone. And sure enough, so they come back a year later, and what they see is a whole lot of tin roofs. Interesting. Really? Right. So all these – so Silicon Valley, you're thinking entrepreneurship. They're all looking at tin roofs. They're like, tin roofs? How is this going to make money? Right. So they ask – 
One of the villagers says, have you ever had a house with a grass roof? <laughs> you no. don't know. It's not the nicest experience, probably. <laughs> no, it's like, it's not just a, not a nice experience. You have to have a specific kind of grass that has to be grown by somebody. You have to have a very high skill set to maintain the thing. The thing's got to be maintained all the time. It's yeah. wicked expensive. You have yeah. to hire an expert. It's like having somebody come put slate shingling on your roof. Okay. So they're like, you know how much money I just saved by putting this tin roof on that I am now pouring back into my family. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then, of course, there were some people that picked up small businesses like bought a motorbike or a cell phone or something. And literally, they were like, did anybody waste this money? And, you know, almost like out of like a, a, like a parable, they're like, over there, there there's, there's the guy. No this. tin roof, no motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> so they get over, they ask the guy. It's like, well, my wife died. I've got five kids. I used the money for an endowment. And I'm married again, and I can go back to work. Okay. <laughs> so, like, money works. San Diego, which is a more like up, you know, here in the U.S., looked at people living in poverty. the The median income in San Diego is something like forty thousand, which is right. like twenty k less than the national median. Right. And so they started giving people anybody making under the median income five hundred dollars a month, hmm. and they tracked it all. Wasn't being misspent wasn't. So that was my interesting social science finding, which I think hurts a lot of us because we're into providing services. Right, right. But, you know, as they used to say back in Oklahoma, I know we live there, money don't buy you happiness, but it keeps a whole heap of trouble off the front porch. So, right. And that's not insignificant to people's lives. So if you can do that and if people are actually going to function better, then that might be a good thing. So so you're a, a pro-universal uh, income person, I would tell I you. I am that. not. That's an interesting question, too, because huh. the people that have tried the pro-universal, the, the few countries that have tried it have stopped it. Really? Well, I've, I've, I've only seen headlines and small yeah, stories. Yeah, that's I didn't all know, I've that's seen. Not too, but they've discontinued it. For some reason, it's not as effective as you would think. The other one that they've discontinued in kind of like Denmark did this, where they did did the wealth tax, which is different than an income tax. It's, you know, they look at your wealth. What is your your value? That didn't work either. They've discontinued (laughs) those. So things that really make good, logical, intuitive sense, like give people, everybody, a base level of income, apparently not so much. Like, uh, I think it was Sweden did it, and they were like, huh? Well, with the Sovereign Wealth Fund, maybe they didn't need... No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but I, th- I, I, I really think we, as a group of people, got to start thinking about, like, how, how do we bring money into the mix more? If you're going to work with people that are poor, probably their first biggest problem is... Being poor. Being poor. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, uh, I want to thank you for your time and your knowledge um, and your experience. We really appreciate you uh, talking with us and sharing all of those um, in such an engaging fashion. Thanks. I really appreciate it, Brett. Thanks for having me on. 